0: You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Hey, I uh, just want to start a new series. I think I'm going to probably kind of just do this over uh, the summer. And it's a series I'm just kind of calling We Believe. And every so often, I just think it's so important um, as a church... Uh, just because we get people that you know are constantly new um, coming into the church. And obviously, one of the questions that they have among many are, what do you guys believe? I mean, where are you at on this particular issue and this particular issue? And so you can have those one-on-one conversations and those are great, but every so often it's just important as a congregation kind of just to go back and revisit that foundation that the church is really built on. What do we believe and why? do we believe it? Now one of the challenges of being an independent church like Praise Community is, is that we really don't have any kind of an authoritative structure beyond our pastors and our elders. Um, And so one of the roles of the pastors, obviously, and the elders, is we always want to make sure that what we're, what we're teaching, what we're believing, what we're supporting, that it's biblical, okay? Uh, and, it, and, and that we're teaching the word of God, that we're, uh, you know, being faithful to the way that God's calling us to follow him. Again, if we're not careful and diligent in that particular area, it is just so easy over time to kind of just gradually and kind of subtly begin to shift away from biblical truth into air, to adopt more of a secular approach to life and faith. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago that there's kind of just this new kind of theology sweeping a lot of churches called progressive Christianity. And again, as I kind of read through the article, I would just sum it in saying that it really is kind of just... Again, not taking the word of God as absolute truth. And so there's just always kind of new things kind of trying to come into the church that kind of try to corrupt the biblical teaching. Uh, And so every so often doing a series like this is just a reminder of who God is calling us to be as a church and what we believe in regards to biblical faith. I think one of the battles every Christian and every church faces is really the battle of worldviews. Okay, worldviews are kind of like contact lens. If you've got the correct prescription for contact lens or for glasses, it enables you then to see the world, you know, clearly and correctly. A worldview should should provide a correct prescription for making sense of the world just as prescription, you know, glasses or contact lenses uh, bring things into clarity and focus for us. So as we begin talking about the importance of a worldview and how it's going to impact uh, all that we 're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, there are several things that are really important to keep in mind in regards to worldviews. First is, everybody has a worldview. Now, you may not know exactly what that is, but I'll guarantee you, you have a a worldview. And everybody has a set of assumptions and presuppositions that determine the way you kind of look at the world, your place in the world, what you think in the world is really important. Second thing to remember about worldviews is that there really are kind of two basic worldviews. There's what we would call the Christian or the biblical worldview and the secular worldview. Now those two primary worldviews are just radically different at practically every point of debate. So whether you're discussing, you know, uh, the questions are trying to answer the questions of why is there something rather than nothing? How do you explain human nature? How do you determine what is right and wrong, true and false? How do you know that you know, you know what happens to a person at death? You know, when does life begin? The Christian worldview gives answers to those questions or those issues that are radically different than what uh, uh, any other secular worldview would give. So this is one of the reasons you know, why many people homeschool You know, it's one of the reasons why Janie and I have chosen to send our kids to a Christian school is because they teach everything from a biblical worldview rather than a secular worldview. Now, I'm not not putting down public education, please. You know, no emails on that. That's not my intent. I love the public schools. um, But again, there's just a difference in how they approach and how they handle a worldview. Third thing is, is worldview worldview is based on faith okay everybody again looks at this world through assumptions presuppositions and again some of these can be proven and some cannot for example a Christian worldview is based on the belief that God exists okay the atheist has a worldview based on the belief that God doesn't exist Now the problem is, is the Christian cannot prove that God exists, but the atheist cannot prove that God doesn't exist. So again, both worldviews are based on faith. The question is, is which worldview has the strongest support or evidence to support their claim or their faith? So every worldview That The faith is only as valid as the evidence upon which it is built. I love what Chuck Colson once said. He said this. He said, the culture war is not just about abortion, homosexual rights, or the decline of public education. These are only skirmishes. The real war is a cosmic struggle between worldviews, between the Christian worldview and the various secular and spiritual worldviews arrayed against it. So again, there are, are basically three components to every worldview. Every worldview kind of seeks to answer three key questions, okay? First is, who are we and how did we get here? Okay, it's a question all of us have probably asked at some point in our life. Who are we and how in the world did we get here? Second thing is, where, where did the world come from, okay? Why is there evil war and suffering in the world? What is our major problem and what is its source? The third and final question is what's the solution? Okay, how can we make the world right again and the purpose of the series really is to provide a biblical worldview response to those questions. And it is here that we really come to the real heart of the entire matter where we have to decide in one word what is going to determine everything we believe, and that one word is truth. Which worldview, which approach to faith is true? Which worldview gives the best answers to those questions? In short, the Christian worldview answers those three key questions with three key words, creation, fall, redemption. The first question, the Christian worldview says, we are all created by God. All that exists, everything you see and experience in the world, all of that was created by God. All other worldviews deny this concept or they'll question key components of it. The second question, the Christian worldview states the problem is sin. And sin came about by the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. This sin corrupted the entire human race as well as the world in which we live. So the secular world view denies that sin has anything to do with the problem. The third question, the Christian worldview says, we need a savior to remedy the sin problem, to give mankind a new heart and a new mind that is truly centered and focused on God. Now, a secular worldview denies the need for personal redemption at all. And so this raises the question of where do we get the Christian worldview? Where do we get the idea that God created us, that God created everything that exists, that because of the fall of man, sin entered into the world and it ruined it, and that Jesus Christ God in the flesh came to die and was raised from the dead to make this world right again. Where do we get that? We get it from the Bible. The Christian worldview is based on what we believe not only to be truth, but that ultimate truth as found in the word of God. And that raises the big question, why believe the Bible? I mean, if you're gonna base it on that, I mean, Why? I mean, what's your your rationale for basing all that we believe on the Bible? I mean, it's one thing to say the Bible is true, but how do you know it's true? Last week, I shared about my conversation with my uncle and him coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And a lot of what I shared with him were, again, quotations from the Bible. At one point, I'm kind of sharing with him God's plan of salvation, and he asked me, how do you know this is true? It's a great question. It's a great question. We must answer that question again before we go any further into the series because everything I'm going to share with you throughout this series, whether it's about evolution, hell, evil, war, heaven, or the certainty of going to heaven, all of that is based on the Bible. And so we've got to answer the question, why is it important to believe the Bible? Now, suffice it to say, it's an explosive question. Okay, we've had a lot of debates, a lot of, you know, cultural wars going back and forth on this very issue. Most of the world denies that it is important at all to believe the Bible or to even understand it as anything more than just another book. Not too long ago, the, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court Throughout the sentence of a man who was given the death penalty because jurors consulted the Bible in reaching that verdict. The court said it constituted an improper outside influence and a reliance on what they deemed a higher authority. Now really in essence what the Supreme Court of Colorado was saying was it's improper to consult the Bible because it's just another book. To many non-believers, the Bible is no more than an antiquated collection of myths and fables. To others, you know, it's a good book. It's got some good things to say. It has some good teachings, but it's not God's word. On the other hand, two billion people, maybe a third of this world, claim to believe in the God of this book and believe that this is the book that God inspired and God worked through holy men to write. Indeed, even the men who wrote it believed that they were writing, they were recording the very word of God. The single biggest fact that people have to deal with concerning the Bible is this. It claims claims to be not the word of men, but the word of God. In the Old Testament alone, phrases like, God said, God spoke or the word of the Lord came. It occurs nearly over 4,000 times. That's a lot. Okay, 700 times, just in the first five books of the Old Testament, 40 times in one chapter. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul said this about the Bible, God's word in 2 Timothy three sixteen: All scripture, okay? He's talking from Genesis to Revelation. All scripture. And here's where some of us kind of get lost in this debate. We want to believe some of the Bible is inspired, but not all of the Bible is inspired. Some of the Bible is, you know, the word of God. Some parts of it are not the word of God. The problem with that is is that then someone has to decide which parts of the Bible are inspired which parts of the Bible are God's Word and which parts are not and the problem with that is is the parts I think maybe are inspired that are the Word of God maybe parts you don't think are and so we've just got this argument we've got this debate we've got this division this lack of unity over what is Scripture well Paul settles that debate he said All scripture. So I say, you know what? If if it's all scripture, it's all scripture. Because if it's just part of scripture, then it's none of scripture. It's one or the other. And so he says, All scripture is inspired by God, meaning that God spoke through godly men to write what God wanted written. That's what that means. All scripture is inspired, is God breathed, and is useful. Now get this, is useful, is helpful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. You want to know what's wrong in your life? Consult the scriptures. It'll tell you what's wrong in your life. That's why a lot of people don't like the scriptures. That's why a lot of people don't like the Bible. Because the Bible begins to point out things that are wrong that need to be changed in our lives, and we don't like that. So we just dismiss it or we downplay its importance. So make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. I've said this before. Your job is not to straighten the Bible out. Your job is not to try to, you know, correct the Bible. The Bible is correct. Its job is now to correct you. Is it getting hot in here? (laughs) And it teaches us to do what is right. That's that's the role. That's the purpose of scripture. And that's why God was so careful to inspire it. This This is huge stuff. The ultimate statement was made by the greatest man who ever lived by common consensus, Jesus Christ. God in human flesh. You don't get any higher, don't get any better, don't get any purer than that. And here's what he said about the Bible in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. How do you do that? Well, he says, your word, he's talking God's word is truth. Jesus himself attested, he witnessed to the validity of the Bible as the true word of God. Jesus, this is just interesting to me, Jesus quoted from 22 of the 39 Old Testament books. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus quoted the Old Testament 19 times. In Mark's gospel, 15 times. In Luke, 25 times. And in John, 11 times. The New Testament book of Hebrews, who many believe Paul, uh, the apostle, wrote, uh, quotes the Old Testament 245 times. Or the Old Testament, 245 times. Uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, Jesus quotes... Hebrews, or let me just go back here. I'm I'm off on my notes here. The New Testament, book of Hebrews, quotes the Old Testament 85 times, while the book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament 245 times. So Jesus, the writers of Scripture, uh, other men who wrote, uh, completely, totally, absolutely believed The Bible was the word of God or Jesus or other writers would have never quoted it. With that in mind, I want to just give you three what I think are very, very compelling reasons why we ought to believe that the Bible is the true inspired word of God. And I'm going to just again share three with you today. First one is I believe the Bible because it is historically reliable. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if you chose 10 people from the same city, with the same culture, with the same educational level, speaking the same language, apart from each other, never talking to each other, never consulting with each other, and you were to ask these 10 to write a book about one controversial topic such as let's just say the meaning of life. What are the chances that these 10 would be absolutely, totally in agreement on everything they write? You and I both know the chances of that happening are zero, okay? Then imagine this. Here is a book that contains 66 books in one, It's written over a a time span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors living in three different continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, writing in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic writing on not just one controversial issue, but many controversial topics, and yet never once do they contradict one another. They all wrote on one theme, basically the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ, and they all basically said exactly the same thing. Their points of view were in in unison. Think about this, the first book of the Bible begins in a garden in paradise, and in that garden there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation again, written 1,500 years later, you end up again in the paradise of God where there is also found another tree, this one being the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, Revelation 22.2. In Genesis, man is driven out of the garden because of his sin and forbidden to eat of the tree. In Revelation, he is invited to come back in and partake of the tree that he might live forever. In Genesis, there is a river which flows from the garden. In Revelation, there is a river that flows from the throne of God. Now the golden thread that runs through uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Again, it is the redemption of sinful man by the grace of God through faith in a redeemer named Jesus Christ. So far, so good, but again, the question is how do we know that all that the Bible says actually happened? How do we know it is a fact and not fable? How do we really know there was a Moses and a Red Sea? How do we really know that there was a Goliath that David killed? How do we really know that there was a Daniel in a lion's den? How do we know Noah, the ark, and the flood are true? How do we know there was a Jesus who died on a cross and came out of the tomb three days later, resurrected? I want you to understand, nobody can prove or disprove what has taken place in the ancient past. All I can do for anyone, for you, is I can just present you with the evidence. I can't prove to you that there was actually a man named George Washington who was the first president of the United States. I can't prove that. All I can give you is the evidence supporting that proof. And in doing that, you just need to keep two things that are very, very important in mind. And and let me just, I know that this is kind of, this is a little bit heavy, maybe for a Sunday morning. But again, this is so, so important, especially when people come in and try to begin to undermine the validity of Scripture. When you really begin to understand this stuff, it gives you evidence not to just kind of, you know, uh, share back and hopefully win them uh, in that discussion. But again, it just helps you to solidify your faith that what the Bible says you can trust, okay? So important in this culture right now. The trustworthiness... I want to just keep two things in mind. Number one, the trustworthiness of any historical account. And I'm talking biblical, secular, okay? Any historical account is based on the evidence for that account, okay? The evidence has to come from ancient documents and manuscripts. It's all we have, okay? And second thing to keep in mind is all ancient history. Not just some of it. All ancient history is based on documentary evidence. Okay, remember 10 or 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, there were no video cameras, no television, no tape recorders. I mean, there wasn't even a CNN or Fox News. Can you believe that? How did those people survive without that? Furthermore, quite frankly, we're at a disadvantage. Because whether you realize this or not, we don't have any of the original manuscripts that were first written when all these things took place. So again, the question is, how do we know we have the right stuff? I mean, you know, in in your teenagers high school history books, they'll read about Julius Caesar, they read about Plato, they read about Homer and about his Iliad, and no one questions any of those historical figures or their written works. And just like every other work of antiquity, scholars and historians, again, they look at two factors in determining authenticity and accuracy of a historical document. The first factor is the number of manuscripts existing today, okay? How many of the manuscripts those are copies of the original, exist today, okay? The second factor is the time period between the original document and the earliest or oldest manuscript still in existence today. Because here's, here's what they base that on. The more manuscripts or copies of the original that we have and the closer the manuscripts are to the original the more we are able to determine where copyist errors, because that's what they did. You know, if they were making a manuscript, they would look at the original and they would be copying that, okay? So they would say that they're able to determine, again, uh, where the copyist errors might have happened and which copies reflect the original. This is a, a really fancy term in seminary I learned. It's called textual criticism um, or the, the biographical test for authenticity. And again, they use this on every document, secular uh, or uh, biblical. For example, let me just give you an example. If I had 10 copies of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and one of the 10 copies contained the word hundred rather than the word score. Remember uh, four score and and seven years ago, okay? You have one of the 10 that contains the word hundred. Okay, again, it's different from the other nine copies. I can determine from the other nine copies that, that contain the word score that a copyist introduced an heir into the one opposing copy. Furthermore, if my nine copies are dated closer to the original writing than the copy using the word hundred, there is an even clearer confirmation as to what the original document actually said. Does this make sense? Okay. As I earlier stated, historians, again, secular biblical uh, documents, okay? Always consider the oldest or the one that's written closer to the original. Okay, they always look to that as the most reliable source because it was written or copied closest to the original document. So this process of of what we call textual criticism is applied to all all historical documents in order to determine their authenticity and accuracy to the original document. Now, in your handout, I kinda give you some examples of what we would call secular documents, okay? So consider the historical document, the Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar, okay? These historical writings speak of Caesar's conquest of Gael, modern modern day France, during the first century. Now, we possess 10 copies of that were made from the original writing, and there is what they determined to be a thousand year gap between the oldest copy and the original. But nobody, again, disputes these copies as lacking authenticity and accuracy to the original document, and nobody I mean, I've never seen anybody question in in college, high school. Nobody questions its credibility. Again, even though there's a thousand-year gap between the earliest copy and the original writing. Another commonly accepted work of Rome is The History of Rome by Levy. Again, there is only a portion of a copy made 400 years after the original. The earliest complete copy of that work, the history of Rome, was found dated 1,000 years uh, after um, the writer. Um, And as with the Gaelic War, historians and scholars, again, they accept these ancient copies as authentic and accurate. No one questions them. No one doubts them. No one thinks these should not be taught. Okay? Tacitus, wrote his Annals of Roman History around 100 A.D., and we possess 20 copies with a 1,000-year gap, again, between the copy and the original. Secundus wrote his book, Natural History. We possess seven copies with a gap of 750 years between the earliest copy and the original text. The number two book in all of history, Manuscript Authority, is the Iliad written by Homer. And scholars have discovered 643 copies, okay? This is probably the second most, you know, numerous uh, copy that we have, okay? And they have discovered a gap of 400 years between the earliest or oldest copy and the original text. And again, nobody questions the accuracy, the authenticity, or the reliability of any of these historical documents. Now, with that in mind, How does just the New Testament alone compare when you you run it through this same grid, okay? We possess more than 5,686 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Again, the the second closest to that was uh, the, the Iliad written by Homer, okay? That was 643 copies we have, of just the New Testament alone, 5,686 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Now you add to that over 10,000 Latin Vulgate, and there are at least 9,300 other early versions. So if you add all of this up, we have close to, if not over 25,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament that are in existence today. No other historical document even begins to approach such a number and corroboration. Again, the closest document to the New Testament, again, is Homer's Iliad with 643 copies. In addition, we have one fragment of the New Testament that they were able to determine was only a 50-year gap between the copy and the original. We have whole books of the New Testament with only a hundred year gap. And the whole New Testament uh, we have with a 225 to 250 year gap between the original and the earliest copies. Do you realize these numbers completely blow away those for any other historical document in our history? We don't have to blindly, you know, naively trust that the New Testament today is the exact same one that was originally written. We can compare it with almost 25,000 manuscripts that go back to being written within 50 to 250 years from the original. That's why Jesus said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. I contend that God oversaw, God super intended kind of uh, the writers as they're writing this to make sure that what was recorded was what actually happened. Second, I believe the Bible because it is scientifically reliable. Now to me, the Bible is not a science book, but if it's true and if it's God's word, then just as you expect it to be historically reliable, you would also expect it to be scientifically reliable. And there's a a huge debate out there in the scientific community uh, over the relevance of the Bible. Another striking evidence that this book is truth and is God's word is found in the fact that many of the principles of modern science that we have accepted okay, were recorded as facts of nature in the Bible long before any scientist ever confirmed them experimentally. Let me give you just a few examples. Thousands of years ago, most of the people in the world believed the earth was flat. I mean, we, I, I, at least I was taught that in school. That was one of the presuppositions, assumptions that people had long, long time ago. The world was flat. In, flat, uh, in fact, Columbus had to overcome this popular opinion in order to discover America. Do you know why Christopher Columbus sailed from Spain with no fear? He would sail over the edge of the world, and don't say it was to infect the Indians with, you know, chickenpox or that nonsense. As a Christian, Columbus knew what the Bible taught about this earth—that it was not a flat disk, rather it was a rounded sphere. Now, where did Columbus get that idea? Where did he get that notion? from this verse in Isaiah 40, verse 22. And there it says, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth. Circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out uh, like a tent to dwell in. That's That's what drove Columbus to believe the world was not flat, it was indeed round. And as long as you sailed on it, you would never ever go over the edge. Thousands of years ago, scientists always thought that winds blew in a straight direction. Of course, we know now that winds travel within circuits. We call them jet streams. That's exactly what the word of God says in Ecclesiastes 1.6, look what it says. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the winds return. That's scientific. In ancient times, again, doctors saw no need for washing their hands before a surgery, and many, many people died as a result of getting infections by the germs that doctors carried on their hands. Later on, doctors began to wash their hands, but they would do it in still water. And people were still dying because of the infection they got from the hands of the doctor. Today, any doctor will tell you, and every medical show you watch where a doctor is prepping for surgery, you will see them washing their hands and running water to make sure that every germ is totally washed away. Now, where would we have gotten that idea from? Well, again... Leviticus 15, 13, now when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water and will become what? Clean, yeah. These are, I I mean I could do a couple of weeks just on this whole thing of where we get a lot of what we do and and believe and trust today in the scientific community. It all comes from the Bible. There's no contradictions here, okay? Third, because I'm running out of time. Don't say amen. I believe the Bible because it is personally relevant, okay? I want you to understand exactly what I mean when I tell you why I believe the Bible is true. When I say the Bible is true, obviously I want you to understand the Bible is factual. That it accurately portrays and records historical events. It is scientifically true, it is prophetically true, but truth goes beyond accuracy. Again, something can be true and factual, but not really have any significance or relevance. So I can tell you the truth about how many buttons I have on this shirt that I'm wearing right now, but you're gonna sit there and think, who gives a rip, right? I mean, it's truth, but there's no significance, there's no relevance to my life in how many buttons are on your stupid shirt, okay? When I talk about the Bible being true, I mean it is significantly true, again, because it answers, or it speaks to, or it addresses not just one of the key questions, but three of the key questions. In fact, how it does so is amazing. The first two chapters of the Bible begin by answering that first key question. Who am I and how did I get here? Okay, the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, answers the second key question. What is wrong with this world and why is there evil and suffering? Genesis chapter 3 tells you that. And the rest of the Bible answers, addresses, speaks to the third question, what is the solution? How can this world be made right again and how can I be right or in right standing with God? If you doubt that this book has that kind of power, listen to what John Adams, the second president of the United States, wrote in his diary. He says, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should relegate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be. Who can deny if every country in the world did what John Adams said? This world would not be a radically different and far better place. I love the words of the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, who said this. He said, I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. He has written it down in a book. Give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book, this book, the Bible. Everybody on this planet, including you, has to make a decision. I mean, there are all these religions out there. There are, you know, different worldviews, you know, contrasting worldviews out there. And they all say different things about God, about heaven, hell, creation, and Jesus Christ. But, folks, you boil it all down, and it really comes down to there are really only two options. Option one is they're all wrong. Okay? And that's possible. You could say all of them are wrong. That's option one. Option two is one is right because they cannot all be equally true. If one is right, we got to figure out which one is right. The Bible, again, could just be a bunch of myths and fairy tales, but based on the evidence, I don't know how you could even begin to believe that. Some other religion books Maybe be the real truth and not the Bible, but based on the evidence, I just don't believe that. And all these books may be wrong, but they cannot all be right. I don't know about you, but I'm gonna go with the man that came back from the dead, who said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. I don't know about you, I wanna be a man like Wesley, again, who said, At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man. Let me, let you be a woman of one book, this book, the Bible. This is what we believe. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.